So this morning, I'm talking about order. And the kind of order I'm talking about, we're, we're preaching, we're, we're in Luke. I had someone ask me recently, are we still in Luke? I'm like, yep, we're still in Luke. We're not very far into Luke, actually. <laughs> it's going to take us a long time to get all the way through Luke. But um, So we're in Luke, and our series is called For Everyone, and the Gospel for Everyone. And, uh, but what we're talking about this morning is order and not the kind of order like chaos and order, but the kind of order like how you order things like priority or numbering. So one, two, three. So like first things first, second things second. There's those kind of adages or whatever. And I was thinking about this as I worked on an Ikea bookcase this week. Why are you laughing? (laughs) And um, Gabe was helping me. Gabe's my detail man, so he loves to do the, like, screwing things, and he loves to follow the directions. So he's the one who right away, as soon as there's something like that, he jumps right in. So we were working on this bookcase together, and I was thinking about this as we got to the point where we had to backtrack, which usually happens many times as I'm building an Ikea thing. But this particular bookcase I was building, I built before. And so I think that's why we only had to backtrack once which I thought was pretty awesome. But as we were backtracking, so moving back to where we'd gone astray, where we'd left the order of things, and we'd gotten caught up in, um, in the frustration of how things don't fit together. They don't work out. If you do things, some things, in the wrong order, then it just doesn't work out. And in life, I think I do this too. I, I'm often, the order I do things in is I make decisions and I move forward, and then I get into trouble and I need help, and then I pray. That's usually my order. I, I make decisions, and then I ask for help, or I need help, and then I ask for help. I pray. And that's my order. And uh, Corey Tinboom says an interesting thing. She says, we tend to use prayer more like a spare tire than a steering wheel, which is what it was made for. A spare tire or a steering wheel. How you use prayer. Jesus, um, in our passage this morning, is, he's doing lots of things. He actually doesn't say anything. There's no red letters in our passage today. Our passage is Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 19. And Jesus doesn't talk at all. He's just doing stuff. So right away, it's like, oh, or can we learn anything? He's just doing stuff. What? It, he walked over there. He walked over there. He went over there. Is there something to learn? And you know what? Even when Jesus is just doing stuff, he's just following the Father and he's walking forward in things, there's a lot to learn because um, how he orders his progression can tell us something. How he orders his progression moving forward speaks something to us about our own lives. So let's read it together. It's Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 19. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, the famous one, no, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Let's put that in there case you forgot who he was. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and on the the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. 
And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Whoa. My big idea this morning is that ordering our lives after Jesus' example leads to Jubilee living. Ordering our lives after Jesus' example leads to Jubilee living. The first thing I think that uh, will happen is that we'll become people of prayer. People of prayer. It reminded me of a story of a boy who's kneeling beside his bed. He's doing his bedtime prayers, and he's there with his mom and his grandma. And so he kneels beside his bed, and he says his prayers. He's like, dear God, uh, thank you for today. Thank you that you're God, and thank you for my bed. And I just pray out of a good sleep. And he's and please bring me my bicycle at my birthday. He yells really loudly. And the mother turns to him and is like, little Johnny, you don't need to yell. God is not deaf. And he says, oh, I know God's not deaf, but grandma is. And I think sometimes we feel like that. We, we know as we pray or we talk about prayer that grandma can hear me when I'm praying. But I'm not sure about God. Sometimes I'm not sure. I feel like, man, does he really hear? Does it, is it going anywhere? I know if I, you know, pray around grandma, I might get the bicycle. But with God, we're not so sure. And the very first thing in our story is that Jesus goes off to pray. That's what it says. Jesus goes off to pray. And right away, I'm struck with the question that I have, which is, why does Jesus need to pray? Does Jesus even need to pray? And it's the same question I have about myself. Do I even need to pray, really? Because God knows everything, doesn't he? Doesn't he know everything? So, okay, can I, you know, can you help me with this thing that I, you already know I need? So do I need to pray that? Do you already know? Are you going to help me anyway? And I have the same thought about Jesus. Jesus is God. If anyone doesn't need to pray, it's Jesus. Doesn't he just get what he wants? Doesn't he just decide to do stuff and he does it? It's God in the flesh. Why does Jesus need to pray. All through Luke, Jesus is doing this. He's demonstrating prayer, and he's teaching us on prayer. There's lots of places. He prays at his baptism. He prays here when he chooses the 12. He prays at Peter's confession. He prays at the transfiguration. He teaches the Lord's prayer. There's all these prayer parables about how we should pray, and he prays before Peter's denial, and the list goes on. Lots and lots of places. But why? So we know he does. We know he teaches about it. But why does he do it? I think there's for sure two reasons. There's probably lots more. One reason is to set an example for us. To set an example for us. To Jesus, prayer isn't just the showy thing he does to show how spiritual he is. He goes up in front of everyone and prays this eloquent prayer because it shows that he's very spiritual so everyone will know how spiritual he is. That's not what prayer is for Jesus. Actually, he goes off by himself. Like it's an important and necessary part of relationship with God. Jesus did it, and so should we. Martin Luther says, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Come on, Luther. Can you be a Christian and not pray? Is it possible? It's like being alive without breathing. The second reason I think Jesus prays is for connection and intimacy. You don't have relationship with someone and never talk to them. It just doesn't make sense. 
It doesn't make sense in your family relationships, in your friendships, in your, in your marriage, in your whatever relationship. You can't have relationship and never talk or communicate with someone. And I think even Jesus needs and wants to be connected. He wants to go and pray and connect with God in this way. And he uses terms of intimacy when he teaches us about prayer. He says, you should say things like, Father, <gasps> God, you're going to call God. We could say your highness. We should say your majesty, holiness, Father, what? Yeah, use Father. Or, oh, even better, here, use this word, Abba, means Papa. Huh? These are terms of intimacy Jesus uses, and he says, you should use these terms too. This is what it's like to have a relationship with God. And when you're talking to him, when you're praying, talking to God, this is what it's like. And what do we learn about prayer from Jesus? Well, when we look at what he was praying about, we don't know anything because we don't know what he prayed about. He went off by himself, so no one was listening. It's not written down. Now, I imagine when I look at the context of what happens right after he went away and prayed all night, that Jesus is praying about the decision he's about to make to choose these 12 people who are going to be his, his special group of disciples, his, the apostles. And so I imagine that this is like a big decision. These, the church is going to rest on these people going forward. Now, even one of them is the traitor. So like pretty important decision. It doesn't say what he decided. What we do know is, number one, that Jesus went away alone. He went away alone. He didn't go off with other people. This time he chose to go on his own. It says in Matthew 6, verses 5 to 6, Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says, the people who go to pray for spiritual recognition, yes, I'm going to pray. Look at me. I'm praying. He says, they got the reward. They got what they wanted. They wanted recognition, and they got recognition. That's what they got. The prayer does, you know, that's a side thing. Jesus says, this is how you should do it. You should go in secret, go in private, and pour out your heart before the Lord, before your Father. And then your Father who loves you is going to meet with you, and he's going to answer. He's going to respond to you in prayer in the secret places. That's where intimacy is built and develops. So for us, where the question comes, where and when do you pray? Do you just pray in the gathering? Do you just pray over your meal? Jesus, bless my food so everyone will know that I'm a Christian because I'm praying over my food. Or are there other places and other times we pray? Tim Keller, uh, he, he challenged me when I was listening to his sermon about um, praying at morning and noon and at night in the evening. And he said it's pretty formulaic. You know, you have these three times in the day and it just reminds me to pray. And actually, I got an email from our our overall Canadian national director of the C2C, our church planting network. And what he said was, he says, our whole network that we're a part of because we just planted this church, our whole thing is that we pray. We don't recruit church planters. We don't go tap people on the shoulder. We pray. And then God brings people. That's what happened to us. We felt stirred and we said, oh, I think God's stirring us. And they said, oh, good. We've been praying for you. 
And for us as a church, we said, well, we didn't start this church with like great plans and great vision and all these great ideas. We started it in prayer, praying, asking God. And so, so Gord sends this email and basically the email says, of anyone in the whole world, we should be praying more than less if everything we're doing is based on prayer. And the challenge was when you wake up in the morning, he gave a bunch of challenges, but the one that really stuck out to me was when you first wake up in the morning, before you get out of bed, praise God, thank him for your day, focus in on God. And I was like, that's not going to happen. I'm very spiritual. I was like, the first thing I think about is shut off that alarm clock. And then usually I'm trying to get out of bed. I can't focus very well till I get to my coffee. So between bed, alarm clock, and coffee, there's not a lot going on in my mind. So to ask that mind to pray is asking a lot of it, I think. And yet, even when he said this, and I scoffed at it, not to him, but over the email, and I woke up, you know, a few days later, whatever it was, and I had this moment. I was lying in bed, and I was sitting there, like, shut the alarm clock off, and I was like, I gotta get out of bed. Oh, I'm in bed. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna try. I praise you, Lord. Thank you for this day. Would you set my heart affection on you? I was like, whoa, this was good. I wonder if that'll ever happen again. (laughs) And I went off. And then more and more, like it's not every day, I'll be honest. But there are days where I wake up and the first thing that happens is I pray. And it's actually becoming more and more this habit. And I think that's what happens as we set those things in. We get to experience that. The second thing we do know too is, so Jesus spends time alone. And the second thing is that Jesus spends significant time. It's not a short time. It's a lot of time. He's there actually all night. I don't know the last time you prayed all night. It's been a long time, maybe, if I could say even a long time. I don't know if I've ever played all night before. And, uh, but Jesus does. And so the question for us is, do you take time out to pray? And what does that look like? Are you able, in that time of praying, to, are you able to pour out your heart? Are you able to listen and respond to God? Are you able to pray maybe through scripture? Maybe it's praying in nature. Jesus was up on the mountain. Out in nature, maybe that's an easier place for you to connect. Or maybe it's praying even with your spouse. That's not alone, but it's praying with someone else who maybe encourages you in it. Or praying with your family. Francis de Sales says, Every Christian needs a half hour of prayer each day, except when he's busy. And then he needs an hour. The busier you are, the the more prayer you actually need. And the more time you could probably spend in it. How do we become people of prayer? You know what, for me, I'll be honest with you, praying is hard. I don't find it easy. When I think about a prayer meeting or a worship thing, I'm like, oh yeah, worship thing. Yeah, play music. Yeah, what should I do? Mm, I'll go play some music. I'll worship. I'm, you know, I'm putting, giving my heart to God in worship and music. But sitting and talking to God, like that, I find hard sometimes. In my mind, it feels like it could be boring or it could be um, not my gift or hard. And yet when I go to do it, there's so much life there. And I think no matter what our feelings about prayer are, we will need to become people of prayer. We'll need it because Jesus did it. Jesus did it. And for us to function in our lives, we'll need to, to be people of prayer. Soren Kierkegaard says, the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. And I think... It's interesting. Instead of going to prayer, trying to get everything from God, we go in humbly, putting ourselves before the Lord. And I thought of actually Carmen Lancaster, who's starting a soaking prayer time. 
And the first one I went to, so it's on Tuesdays, the first one I went to is all these ladies and a bunch of them needed prayer for things. They needed healing, actually. And instead of everyone sitting down and being like, okay, pray for me next. Okay, pray for me next. Okay, pray for me next. They said, no, let's just seek God. Let's just go and be with God and see what he, what's on his heart. And they began to pray for neighborhood, all, all sorts of things. It's beautiful. Not praying to get, but to be changed. Prayer makes us into people of gratitude and praise and makes us people of the word, makes us people of power because prayer connects us to God. So I think we'll need to first be people of prayer. And then secondly, we become uh, people people. We'll need to become people people. There's all these movies and stories over the last many years about the science fiction stories in there about how technology is like going to take over these robots or artificial intelligence and like it's like okay watch out for all that stuff and you know there's all these stories and they some of them like just keep going and going they keep making more and more sequels to things because it's all all about this it's this idea of like technology is taking over and my brother when I would we're talking about this he's reading a book about um, how technology at the very heart of technology is efficiency the goal of technology is efficiency it's actually to replace the role of a person in something so that we have more time to do something else. So the, the higher the tech, the better it is. It's like, oh, now we don't have to do that anymore. Great. It just does it itself. Okay. Oh, we don't have to do that now. Okay, great. And the problem with technology is that because it's focused on efficiency, relationship at its heart is not efficient at all. It's the opposite of efficiency. So relationship and kind of our culture's obsession with technology are kind of at odds in a lot of ways. People are clunky. They are messy and complicated. They're not efficient. They don't operate in clear lines with parameters and programming. They do strange things and say strange things, and they take a lot of time and investment and energy. Who are Jesus' people? A few weeks ago, we talked about how Matthew called Levi, or Jesus called Levi, who was Matthew. And we talked about how that's, that was very strange. I asked you to imagine that you were Jesus and you were going to pick your top 12, your dream team. And then we talked about how none of you or me would have a tax collector on your dream team. It just wouldn't happen. And yet on Jesus' dream team, there he's got Matthew. This is his, his 12 people he picks in our passage. He's picking the 12 of them. And he's designating them apostles. And the word apostle in, in the Greek means me, one who is sent out. So he's got this group of people that he's going to train and he's going to give them opportunities. He's going to show them what to do and help them know what to do. And then he's going to send them out into the world. They don't even know how far they're going to go. This is his team, which is also written out in Matthew and Mark. The Jesus dream team is Simon Peter. So he's got the two names. So don't get confused. Lots of them have two names, okay? Simon Peter, Andrew, who's Peter's brother, and then James and John, and they're kind of the well-known of the group. They're the ones who usually are talking and saying brash and outlandish things and sometimes getting rebuked or sometimes getting praised for the things they say. But they're the uneducated fishermen. That's who they are. They're, um, this is a real picture, too. There was only one ever taken. And Philip, he's another one we hear mentioned so Philip, he's mentioned a couple times. He's the one at the breaking where the Jesus multiplies food. That's Philip there. 
And Bartholomew, like, dude, have you ever heard of Bartholomew? Most people, if they try to make the list, wouldn't be able to think of Bartholomew, I think. He's kind of the quiet one, I guess. And uh, so commentators think that Bartholomew, because it's a family name, it'd be like saying, you know, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Headley. And you'd say, oh, okay. And so the family name, though, they think maybe that's Nathaniel, who's mentioned earlier where Jesus meets and talks with Nathaniel. So they say, maybe that's Nathaniel there. Matthew, the tax collector, we talked about. So if you want more information about him, he's in the sermon a few weeks ago. The uh, reviled and outcast tax collector by Jewish society. Why, how he ends up in that group is, is a miracle. And then you've got Thomas, the doubter. Thomas, who's the one who says, I need proof. I need to see it. And all the rest of the disciples, a whole bunch of them say, no, we saw Jesus. He's alive. He's alive. Yeah, we saw him. He was there at that thing. And Thomas is like, I didn't get to go. No, I, I won't believe it unless I touch his hand, the hole in his hand. And then at the next meeting, Jesus walks through the crowd and goes over to where Thomas is sitting and says, go ahead, Thomas, touch my hand. Thomas does it, says, I believe. And Jesus says, well, blessed are all the people who won't get to do that and who will believe instead. Anyway. And then we've got James, so not the, another James, so not the brother of Jesus, not James, John's brother, and not James of Mark. So there's a different James. And we've got Simon, who's the zealot. So a zealot is someone who is working actively against Rome. They were like the saboteurs and the, the resistance movement against the Roman Empire. So the zealots were like going to kill and do whatever they needed to do to get rid of the Roman Empire. And Jesus got one of these people in his group. And then he's got the two Judases. Judas, son of James, who's also called Thaddeus in the other Gospels. And I'd go by my second name, too, if I, my name was Judas. You know, because of the next Judas. But So Thaddeus, in the other list, it's not two Judases, it's just Thaddeus. So the commentators say, well, that's probably the Judas who doesn't want to go by his first name anymore. And then you've got the Judas, the famous Judas, Judas Iscariot, which when I was growing up in the church, I always thought Iscariot meant traitor. Like, don't be an Iscariot. Yet Iscariots are really bad. They're traitors. But actually Iscariot doesn't mean that. It just means coming from the town of Kerioth, which I wouldn't want to be called Iscariot after this. Anyway, we'd have to change our title to Kerioth-ians or something. But that's what Iscariot means. This is his group. These 12 apostles. These are the people for the 12 tribes of Israel. They're fishermen and a tax collector and doubters and zealots and traitors. Do you think these people got along? Seriously? Just think about the list I just said. Do you think these people got along? Case in point. Tax collector who served the Roman Empire, who was a traitor, branded a traitor. No one would touch him or talk to him or go in his house. And then you've got on the other side, Simon the Zealot, who's trying to kill those people. He's trying to overthrow Rome. Be like Jesus being like, okay, bunk bunk mates, you and you. Let's see how that goes. Close that door. Yeah, let them fight it out for a little bit. Just the love of Jesus in that room, okay? Like, you think, this is crazy. These people, this, this is his crew? This is his group? Again, this is the dream team. Jesus, the Son of God, picked these people to carry the torch of the church forward. Why? They remind me a lot of our vision for Jubilee. 
actually. Remember how we talked about those who were in distress and in debt and discontented from the story of David and how when David started, those were the people who gathered around David. And yet God began to transform them and made them into this, these mighty legendary heroes, these people of faith. And so I see this list that this is not a, these people aren't the strong or the talented or the super spiritual. They're just willing. They're just willing. And it reminds me of our series called For Everyone. This is Luke's Everyone. Here's the list. This is the group. Could you fit in this group? Yeah, I think so. Could I fit in this group? Yeah. Do I want to be in that group? I don't know <laughs> if they're, how they get along. What's Jesus' strategy for working with these people? What's his strategy for evangelism and reaching out? It's love. He loves people. He's willing to go and eat with them and talk to them and call them in and relate with them, an invitation to belonging and an invitation to acceptance and an invitation to salvation. What's Jesus' strategy for discipleship? A lot of patience, I think. And if you read through any of the gospel accounts, the stories of Jesus and the disciples— Man, he is patient with these guys over and over and over. He says the same things to these same people over and over and over. What about proclamation? What's Jesus' strategy for proclamation? I think he does it in all sorts of ways. We see it in this passage. Jesus is preaching. He's about to give the Sermon on the Mount. And he's also healing people. And he's meeting their need. And he's setting them free. And he's going and eating and drinking a lot with people. And he's going and, you know, he's up on the mountain. He's doing all these things. Proclamation for Jesus happens in his whole life, everywhere. Wherever he is, he's displaying God's love to people around him. And how does Jesus do community? I think it would be messy. Like I said, you got those, that group in a room. Those are the, that's the discipleship training school. These guys, they're all there together. That's going to be messy. Because relationship is messy. People always say, oh, I want to be part of the early church. Oh, that was so awesome. I'm like, I don't know. That would be hard. I think it would be hard. But for us, life together isn't going to be easy either. It is going to be more beautiful as we walk together. So what about you? Are you a people person? Would you say, well, I'm not really, that's not really my personality. Or, yeah, you know, people think, like the way I grew up, it's just not my thing, being a people person. And my challenge to you again would be that it doesn't really matter if it's your thing or if it's your personality or it's not. We will need to become people people because that's what Jesus was about. Relationship is never going to seem efficient. Discipling people is never going to be glamorous. But it is the economy of the kingdom. It's how God is doing things. So we'll be people of prayer, will be people, people. And then lastly, I think, as we, by his spirit, become people of power. We empower people. The amazing thing about Jubilee and our, our vision, our hope for what's going to happen as we gather and as we meet and as we build community is that we can't do it without the power of God because it's about people being set free, coming to encounter God. So we can't do that. As a pastor, I meet with people all the time. We sit down and they share their story. Maybe it's their, their childhood growing up and their stories of pain and difficulty. People who share their stories of what's going on right now. Maybe it's addiction or struggle. And it's hard and it's painful and it's difficult to hear people's hard stories. 
And the most, the, the feeling that makes you feel the most helpless is that when someone shares those things with you and you realize there's actually nothing I can do about this. I could give trite advice or I could, you know, positive thinking, just positive think your way out of it. But at the end of the day, there's really nothing that I can do to make it better or to change it. We need the power of God to come and to do that. Luke 4.18 is the passage where Jesus proclaims the Jubilee. And I think it's interesting that the very beginning of it starts with, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he goes into to proclaim and to set people free and to do all these things. But the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And I think the order of that is important. You can't go out and set people free. You can't go out and proclaim. You can't do all these things without the spirit of God, without the power of God to, to do it. Seeing the world respond or seeing people's hearts respond, we won't see it. It won't happen unless it's a work of his spirit in other people. And so we're asking him. We can't manufacture or create it. We have to ask him to do it and walk with him as he does it. So a challenging question for us and for our church and for our lives is, when the world looks in, do they see power? Do they see power? Or when the world looks into the church, do they just see a bunch of people sitting there holding on to their traditions? And they're just impotent. There's no, nothing there. It's just dry and empty. Is that what they see? Do they see answers to the confusion of the world? When they come in and they say, is there answers here? Is there, what, what's here? Do they see something greater or more powerful than the efforts of man? If they walked in here and they said, hmm, yeah, I could put a pipe and drape. I could play some music. We could do this. Then we failed. Because if there's nothing else here but our effort, then we've missed something. Because we need the power of God. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I think often when we talk about power, people picture healings. I want the power of healing, and I can just heal everyone. That's power. Or I can move that mountain, that move that mountain. Or I can just pray and get a parking spot every time, whatever it is. I don't know. We picture power like that. And even in this verse, I think the, maybe the very basic place we could start praying for power would be that we would love one another. Because I think what Jesus says is, if people walked in and they said, whoa, this is a crazy mix of people. How do you get along? We're like, we don't always get along, but, but we love each other. How do you do that? I don't even love my family. Like, how do you do that? We do it by God's power. That's how we do it. So the very first thing we could pray for would be the power to love people. And in doing that, we'd be led back to prayer. And so then it becomes a circle. We're praying to be able to love people and for his power to be evidenced. And we need to come back to pray for his power. So to understand the power of Jesus, um, there's different roads in scripture. Some people talk about the Romans road. So you can read the Romans scriptures out of the book of Romans for salvation. And this is one about the power of Jesus. So you could turn to Colossians if you want, I'm going to walk you down Colossians Road. Colossians Road. I just made this up, so it's my own road. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. And it's just a few different verses out of Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 27. This is what it says. In order for you to understand what kind of power we're talking about. 
This is what Colossians 1.27 says. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God reveals himself in Christ, in Jesus, who is in you, Spirit of God in you. God is revealing himself through Jesus in you. That's number one. Number two, Colossians 1, verse 17 to 20. So a little bit before the other Colossians. This is what it says. And he is before all things. There's a whole awesome boat. He's the image of the invisible God. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, Jesus. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood by the blood of his cross. The second thing, step, is that in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. That's what it says. God was pleased to put all the fullness of God in Jesus. And then Jesus, in that fullness, reconciled us to God through the cross. It's a beautiful picture. We were not reconciled until Jesus reconciled us and brought us to the Father. The third thing would be Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 to 7. It says, therefore, so chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. Number three is that you received Christ, the fullness of God, the hope of glory. You received Christ, and now it says, so now walk in him. Be rooted in him. Be built up. Grow in him. This is the journey where the fullness of God comes to dwell in us and we walk in it by his spirit. And the fourth one is Colossians 2, 9 to 10. It says, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Do you get that yet? In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is the power that is available to you and to me as we walk under the lordship of Jesus, being filled by his spirit. This is what it says. The fullness of God in Jesus lives in you. That's the promise. As we open the door, Jesus says, I'm knocking on the door. When you open the door and invite me in, that's what happens. You are filled with the power of the living God. This is not a small thing. But Jesus is not your genie. Jesus is not your genie. Do you know that? I love the story of Aladdin. I remember when Disney's version came out, and I went to it and was like, oh, this is a great story. And all my life growing up, I love the story of the, the genie and the lamp. You get this little lamp, and you rub it, and then you get wishes, and the, you, you get wishes? What could be better than this? I spent a lot of time thinking about my wishes. What would my wishes be? And if I find that lamp, I'm going to wish very carefully. 
Not for unlimited wishes because you're not allowed to. But what would be the other wishes? So then I think about it and I wanted this thing so badly. And you know what happens is I think we hear about this description of God's power and uh, that Jesus healed everyone where he went. He went into this place and he healed everyone. Everyone got healed. All. All. We think, man, that's it. This is it. I'm just going to rub this. Okay, Jesus, boop, 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 do this. Okay? And then it doesn't happen, and we think, like, like, the, like the vending machine, I haven't put enough money in, so I'll get more money tomorrow. I'll put more money in that vending machine. It's going to come. I'm going to get the, th- boop, 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 and we rub that lamp, and we think that's what it's like to follow God or surrender to God. And you know what? That's not the story at all. As we pursue happiness, God says, my end goal isn't your happiness. It's your holiness. Someone said that. I can't remember who it was. Someone famous, probably. But you know what? Here's the thing. If God's concerned, not about my happiness, but my holiness, here's the great news about that. That I strongly believe with all my heart that as we pursue God to know him, to walk in him, and he makes us more and more holy on that road, that we will be more happy. That actually that is the road to find happiness. We just don't pursue it as an end. We pursue him. And in him, there is all happiness. As we become the people we were made to be, as we get set free, we become the people we were made to be in him. And then, oh, the gladness rises in our heart and we find joy and happiness there. Ordering our lives after Jesus' example will lead to jubilee living. Firstly, we become people of prayer. We become people of prayer because you can't manufacture, you can't do it yourself. We need him to do it. And so we go and we begin to build our relationship with God through prayer. And secondly, we become people, people. I don't think you can truly go to God in prayer and grow in your relationship with him and not have it overflow into becoming a love for people. And if you don't love people, then I think you find that in prayer in God's heart because he has a heart for people. And then lastly, Out of that, we become people of power. We experience his spirit, and we see him at work in our gatherings, in our schools, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you uh, for your example that you, you came and you were the image of the invisible God. You showed us what God's heart was for us. And you demonstrated things. You taught us things that we needed to know. Even as you did your ministry and you set about reconciling us through your death and resurrection. And God, we're grateful for that. Lord, we, we, sometimes we hear these things and we think, oh, prayer, that's just so hard. And God, we need you to come and help us. God, loving people, oh, that's so hard. We need you to come and help us to change our hearts. God, to be people of power, we can't even do that. We don't even know what that means. So we need you to come and to do it, to demonstrate your power in our midst, Lord. We invite you to do that in our hearts, God, to begin that work. Lord, would you awaken longing in us that we would just long for it at the very least. It would would awaken us to longing for those things and that you would begin to make us into that. We thank you that you're faithful to do those things, to work in us. We love you. Amen. So for our response time today, I was praying about it, and I'd like to invite Dave up and the team. Um, 